Second Samuel chapter 21. So we're gonna we're gonna enter our last section of Second Samuel. Um, I've mentioned this on numerous occasions, but when we look at the book as a whole, we can break it down into really three sections. The first section is really the first ten chapters or so, and that covers the rise of David as king, and it focuses on many of his righteous attributes and his actions. Remember, that serves as an example of Christ for us, because David is a type, just another fancy word for example, of Christ. And so we see that in the first ten chapters or so. The next ten chapters, 11 through 20, reveal a different side to David, and that's where we begin to see him struggle. And in many respects, I believe that David there um, is a type of Israel, meaning he kind of reveals Israel's faults. And as we look at him, we see how his sin reflects that that we see in Israel. And through that process then, we get a picture of how God responds to Israel. And so we get this great picture of, of the example of Christ in the first ten chapters as David represents how, how we're supposed to see Christ in many respects. Then the next ten chapters we really see how God responds to Israel with an imperfect king like, like David. And, and um, so we get these great uh, pictures. As we get to this last section, we have basically five chapters left. And it's unusual in that it covers six different events in the life of David. And they're just sort of, uh, I won't say thrown in there, but they're kind of put into the end of the book. And we don't really know when they occur in the rest of the book. They're not chronological. They don't necessarily follow chapter 20. They're just six different selected events from David's life that are supposed to teach us something. And what, what's interesting about it is most scholars believe that the arrangement is done somewhat deliberately in these events. You've heard this fancy term before, chiastic structure. And what that is, is it's a way of describing the way the Hebrew text might be laid out or arranged. And the best way to kind of describe this is there's six sections in this last portion here. And on the the very ends, if you will, it starts with a discussion of David and um, kind of presents the Lord's divine judgment and mercy on Israel. And that's what we're going to look at today, his divine judgment and mercy on Israel. And that's the first of these six sections. Well, then at the very end, the very last section, is the same thing. It's a different story, but it also reveals God's divine judgment and mercy on Israel. And those are the bookends. So the best way to look at it might be kind of like they're here. You have A and then what we call A prime. Is a structure. And then there's two more sections that kind of bump in. And it's the second and then the fifth. And those are also related where we see a discussion of David's mighty men. And you'll see that in the text. After, you know, when we, next week we'll get it as mighty men. But then a couple weeks later, you're going to see it's a discussion about mighty men again. And so you kind of have this A, I'll call it here, A prime. In fact, for you guys, it would be this way. Okay? And then we bump in to two more sections that are very similar. And then we're going to bump in again. So you kind of get divine judgment, David's mighty men, and then David's song. And then David's song, David's mighty men, divine judgment. And it's just, we don't really know why they did that. It might be to help them understand and remember the flow of the text. Remember, they didn't have chapter headings, and they didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers. We can say, well, turn to, you know, turn to Psalm you know, 6. And you guys all know where to find that. They didn't have that. It's Hebrews. And so some of these chiastic structures may have been more than just poetry and more than just sort of literature arrangement. They might be a a tool for them to be able to remember how things are broken out. As I've kind of shared with you here, I've given you an idea of if somebody were to say, 
what's the flow of the book of 2 Samuel, you can sort of say, oh, the first ten chapters are a type of Christ, the next are how God reflects Israel, and then these last are David's events, and here's how that's arranged. It helps you to remember that. That might have been one of the reasons why they did that. So we're going to look at this over the next few weeks here. We're going to begin this last section of five verses here in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. And it's without a doubt probably one of the most troubling passages in the entire Bible. And the reason I say that is because it appears to present David and the Lord, God the Father, um, involved with sin or something that's unacceptable. And so we're going to have to sort of work our way through that and try to figure out what's going on. The way that I'm going to break this text down today is we're going to do it in three sections like we we often do. The first we're going to look at is how it reveals God's divine judgment. Then we're going to see how there are two acts of grace. And then finally, an act of mercy. And so we're going to basically start with, with divine judgment and we're going to end up at God's mercy. And we're going to try to put that together for us. So our passage begins with this act of divine judgment that we find in the first nine verses. I'm going to read the first two here. And it's where Israel is facing a severe famine. So uh, just look at the first two verses with me. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. So this famine that we have here lasted for three years. There's no indication um, or in the rest of the scriptures exactly where this famine occurred, except that it must have been after David's gracious act towards Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and we're going to see why that is. So we kind of know that it happened after David had extended his grace to Jonathan's son, but aside from that, we're not really sure in the biblical text where this famine occurred, but we know that it lasted for three years, year after year it said, and David did what he often did, which was he sought the presence of the Lord. That basically means that he went to um, inquire of the Lord, what's going on? He looked for answers from him. The Lord reveals to David that the famine is divine judgment against Israel for something that Saul had done. And what did Saul do? Well, it says that he attempted to put the Gibeonites to death, or that he actually put to death some of the Gibeonites. We don't know when again this happened. Um, The Gibeonites here refers to the former residents of a city called Baroth, and they were fleeing from their lives from two of Saul's sons, because they had commanded an attack against the city. That's actually recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And we don't know much more than that. We just know that 2 Samuel chapter 4 in a couple of verses mentions how Saul sent two of his sons to attack the Gibeonite city, and they had to flee for their very lives. Not really told why. It's almost like a little footnote or a side note in the text. Now... The Bible describes this as an egregious sin, this attack on this Gibeonite city. And the reason we're told that it was a grievous sin was because the Israelites had made a covenant with the Gibeonites. Let me go to um, Joshua chapter 9. 
You guys will remember this story if, if you were here when we went through the story of Joshua. It's got a, almost a little bit of humor to the story. I'm going to read part of it for us here. Joshua chapter 9. If you remember, Joshua had come in. They, had, they were um, taking over the land of Canaan. They were commanded by God to do just that, to go in and to wipe out the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of the land were being judged by God. And so they were supposed to go in and, and basically run them out. Well, so obviously some of the tribes that are in that region, the non-Israelites, are getting word of this, right? So we come to... Joshua chapter 9 says, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, they heard of it. And they were they gathered themselves together and on one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jer- or heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and at Ai, they also acted craftily, and they sent out envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves, and the bread of their journey was dry and had become crumbled. So they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord of your God. And we heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shiloh, the king of Hezbon, or uh, Heshbon, to Og, the king of Bashan, and he was in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This is our bread, and it was warm when we took it, out of the, took it on our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins, which we filled, were new, and behold, they are torn and These are our clothes and the sandals are worn. They're worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Kind of a long story. It's about half of it. But basically what we find is that the Gibeonites, they're living in the land that they know Israel is supposed to conquer. They know they're next on the list. And so they come up with this scheme. Let's pretend we're from really far away. And the way to do that is to put on old raggedy clothes, worn sandals. We'll take old wineskins. We'll take moldy, crusty, dry bread. And we'll go to Israel. And that'll prove to them that we really traveled a long distance. And so they go through these elaborate discussions of, well, look at us. We must be from far away because our bread is already dry. It was warm when we took it out of the oven. These wineskins, they were, they were brand new. And look at them now. Well, in Israel, just they get hoodwinked. They just take it for what it looks like. And so Joshua makes a covenant with them. And it's a covenant that the text tells us was made before the Lord. Now, the rest of that passage, it tells you that Israel discovers that it was all a trick. It was a ruse. And the elders 
people want to attack, but they can't. And it's because they had made this covenant before the Lord, and therefore it stood. So they weren't able to do it. So they basically allowed the Gibeonites to live in their land. They enslaved them. They had become their servants. And they had been there all the way up until the time of, of David here as well. But in verse 2 of our passage today, 2 Samuel chapter 21, it says that David had sought, I'm sorry, that Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the house of Israel and Judah. And so for that reason, Israel is now suffering a famine. You might be wondering why God was punishing Israel with famine for something that Saul did. It doesn't seem to sound fair, does it? What did this generation have to do with what Saul had done? That's what makes this one of the most troubling passages in the scripture because of what we're going to see happen here. The answer, I think, comes in understanding what's referred to as the principle of corporate responsibility and consequences. The principle of corporate responsibility and consequences. It's something that's found throughout ancient Near East and in the Bible. God not only dealt with individuals in their own individual sins, but he dealt with Israel as an entity, as a group. And sometimes when an individual would sin, the group would pay the consequences. It doesn't sound necessarily fair to us, does it? As Israel's king, Saul represented Israel and his actions represented the actions of Israel. Now consider this. Does a king go out by himself? No. He would obviously take his military with him. He had his two grandsons involved with him here who were commanders in his army. And so Saul didn't necessarily act alone, but he did act as the representative, the head of Israel. And as Israel's head, as their leader, as their commander, he went out and committed this injustice against the Gibeonites. He violated a covenant that was established before the Lord. And what we see is that there's consequences not just for Saul and his family, but also for Israel. Because Saul was a representative of Israel. Now, we actually see this in other places in the scripture. This idea of corporate responsibility and consequences. Anybody remember the story of Achan? I know one person in here does. Katie's head just popped right up. It's one of her favorite stories, I believe. After Israel had gone in and conquered Jericho... Their next battle, they go to fight at Ai, and it goes terribly, terribly wrong. Which was a shock to Israel, because things had gone so well. Well, the reason was Achan. Achan had done something that was completely prohibited and banned. And because of that one act, Israel as a whole suffered in battle against Ai. I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 1, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Now notice what it starts with. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. Why? For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against who? The sons of Israel. For what Achan had done. As we read through the rest of the story, what we basically find out is that God sort of whittles down 
the group, you know, have this tribe before me, then this, and he whittles it all the way down until there's just Achan left. And we find that Achan had taken some of the, some of the stuff that was prohibited. There were certain things when Israel would go into a city that were left to God. They were not able to take them for themselves. They were referred to as being under the ban. Well, Achan saw some things that he liked and decided to take those things, but he was prohibited from doing so. And he hid him in his tent. Well, God saw it. Apparently some others probably saw it. His family apparently was aware of it. Probably hard to dig a hole in your tent and bury that stuff without your family seeing it. And so what we find is that Israel actually pays the price because they're defeated when they go to battle against Ai. It's as if the Lord's presence is not with them. You look at verse 25 of that same chapter, chapter 7. Joshua, as he's talking to Achan, says, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day, and all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. That's his family they're talking about there. His family was culpable as well. Again, there's a challenge for us as we look at that, because we see God judging all of Israel and allowing soldiers to be defeated at I because of what Achan and his family ultimately did. We see his family pay the price because of Achan's actions. And now it appears in the text that they were likely aware of that, which makes them culpable. And so we see this example of corporate responsibility and consequence. Again, it's something that we think we might struggle with a little bit. But that's the way that the Lord addressed Israel. The book of Judges, if you remember that, both the faithful and the unfaithful alike face the consequences of Israel's actions. Think about this for a moment. We see this, this spiraling effect in the book of Judges where Israel begins to worship Baal. So God brings, among them, or brings upon them oppression, brings their enemies against them. They then cry out to the Lord and confess their sins. God then raises up a judge, rescues them, and then they just you know rinse and repeat. They do the same thing again, same thing again. Do we imagine for a moment that there were absolutely no faithful individuals anywhere in all of Israel? No. We would assume that there probably were some. But they faced the consequences of that, didn't they? Meaning, they were there when the oppressors came. So sometimes the innocent, if you will, in that corporate environment, face consequences brought upon that national entity. Think about what happens in the book of Revelation. The first few chapters describe these seven churches. These are churches of believers. Six of them are are hit pretty hard, judged by the Lord. Are we to assume that there wasn't a single individual faithful Christian in any one of those churches? Sometimes individuals who are faithful, because they're in a corporate environment like a church, struggle with the consequences brought upon that church or that entity, even though they may not be particularly guilty of the sin that brought that. Today, as we look around, there are churches that pay the consequences for the actions of their leaders. I think about the the big church, McDonald's church, way up in Chicago. Are we to believe there were no good, faithful Christians within that church when everything began to collapse because of the sins of their leaders? No, it does happen. Think about nations. 
The same thing. Does God ever bring about consequences and judgment on nations? We're told, in the scriptures, we're told that He does. Are we to assume that, oh, that's only, only the, the only individuals that are affected by those national consequences are the wicked and the unfaithful? Think about what we see in the book of Revelation. Now, depending on where you sit um, theologically with your belief in the rapture, whether the rapture happens before the tribulation begins or somewhere in the middle or somewhere before the wrath of God, it's clear that in the book of Revelation it describes martyrs, Christians being martyred during the seals, the first seven seals that are opened by the Lamb. Okay? In fact, at one point, we're told that those martyrs are underneath the altar and they're crying out, when are you going to, when are you going to take care of this? When are you going to, when are you going to judge them for what they did to us? And they're told, not yet, wait until the rest of the martyrs will be martyred. And which means that there are faithful, godly individuals that are facing the consequences of what's being poured out on, on the nations. Now, we can debate whether that's God's wrath or not. I don't believe that the beginning of the seals there is God's wrath. I don't believe that starts until the seventh seal. But the reality of it is they, there's consequences. We have to clearly understand that what happens in the beginning of the book of Revelation are the consequences that the Lord pours out onto the earth to begin to judge the earth. And there are Christians, faithful Christians, who are there that experience that. It's not aimed at them. And again, it doesn't violate the principles of, of wrath because we're told that God doesn't pour out his wrath upon us. But it doesn't mean that we don't sometimes face the consequences of corporate judgment, whether that be on a nation, on an entity, on a group, or in some cases even on a church. And so there's this principle again of corporate responsibility and consequences, and we see it most strikingly here in Second Samuel chapter twenty two or twenty one. Go ahead and go back there for me. Because of Saul's actions Let me share this too. It may be something as simple as nobody in Israel, meaning as a general, stood up when Saul did what he did. Did anybody hold Saul accountable? Did Israel as a whole say, this is wrong, Saul. We have a covenant with these people. You know, we kind of saw that when when Absalom rose up against David. And what what did Israel do? We go with the guy we think can win. Instead of standing up and saying, no, David is the guy. And sometimes that brings culpability alone, just not speaking up, just not saying anything. And and maybe that's partly what's going on here, but what we find is that this famine is in the land here because of the actions of Saul. And so David is crying out to the Lord, and he basically is asking him, so what's going on? Well, look at verses 3 through 6. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, this is after David gets his answer from the Lord, the Lord tells him, it's famine because of what Saul did. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you, and how could I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to execute or exterminate us from the remaining 
um, within the border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. That's where all of a sudden it gets real for us. That's the part that many of us would struggle with. What? Basically, David goes to the Gibeonites and he says, what do, you, what, what do I do? What do I have to do to make atonement for this crime committed against you? And they basically say, give us seven of Saul's descendants and we're going to hang them. David uses a very specific word here. Notice he uses the word atonement. Atonement refers to the means through which the penalty for sin is satisfied. There's a penalty for sin that's required. To atone for that means to satisfy that penalty. Christ's death was the atonement for us and for our sin. The sin for or the penalty for sin is spiritual and physical death. Jesus Christ satisfied that penalty by dying on the cross in our place. He atoned for our sin. And so David is basically saying, there has to be atonement here. There was a sin committed against the Gibeonites. In order to make this right, in order for the consequence of the sin now, the famine, to go away, atonement must be made. So he asked the Gibeonites. He isn't purely, though, interested in satisfying the penalty, though, because he even refers to returning the Lord's blessing back to Israel. You'll notice what he says there is, essentially, what do I have to do to return the the inheritance, the blessing back to Israel? That just, I'll go off a little side note here, that kind of makes me think about my own confession of sin sometimes. Is it just that I want the consequences of that sin to go away? Or is it that I'm seeking the blessing of the Lord in addition to that? I would think the latter would be more appropriate. I want more than just the consequence to go away. I want to be back in the right relationship. I want the blessing of the Lord on me. And so our confession of sin should be more than just, I'm suffering now, Lord, I know I sinned, take the consequence away. It should be this beseeching of the Lord to be back in his good graces and to be experiencing the blessings, not just not experiencing the consequences. And so that's what David is seeking here. He wants it all put back right with the Lord. He wants Israel not just to now have the famine end, but to receive back the blessings promised to them by the Lord. And so he's seeking for atonement and he goes to them and he asks what they must do. The text doesn't tell us whether the Lord specifically told David to seek atonement, but David clearly understood the need to do so. He likely understood the law very, very well here, that atonement is required. When pressed by David, it's interesting. The first response that we see from them is they didn't have any monetary claims against Saul's house. They didn't really seek vengeance. I find that interesting. They weren't interested in seeking vengeance. They weren't thinking about suing and just simply being compensated financially. However, they did desire atonement as well. And so David kind of presses them. And what we're basically told is that they asked David to hand over seven sons. This is descendants. That's the best way to understand that. Of Saul so that they could hang them before the Lord in Gibeah, Saul's hometown. That's where his headquarters was. Essentially, what they asked for was the remaining, or most of the remaining 
male descendants of Saul. Saul only had eight men who were still alive, eight descendants, male descendants that were alive at this point. Two of them were his sons by his concubine Rizpah. Then there was his grandson Ishbosheth, which was the one that David had taken sort of under his wing, Jonathan's son. And then there were five grandsons through his daughter Merib. And so that's the eight individuals. And they asked for seven. Now it's likely the reason they asked for seven and not eight may have been because seven was considered to be a number of completion and wholeness. That's possible. But it may be that they were also aware of David's covenant with Jonathan's son. And they knew that that he wasn't going to hand him over. So they asked for these remaining seven descendants, male descendants of Saul. The immediate question we may ask is how this is righteous. After all, weren't these men innocent? Wouldn't we assume that? Does it sound right for God to do this? I mean, after all, it was Saul who sinned, right? A couple of things we have to look at. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. I hopefully will try to answer this in a way that um, is satisfactory. This is where we have to sort of put on our theological caps. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. The Bible clearly states that God punishes us for our own sin. He does not punish us for the sins of our parents. That's what's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. That's a defined scriptural principle. It is unjust for God to punish an individual because his father sinned. Likewise, to punish the father because of purely the sin of his child. (laughs) but the Bible also states that God will visit upon the children the iniquity of their fathers when they follow them in their sinful ways I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 9 is that right? You shall not worship them or serve them. He's talking about Baal, basically, idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on, or, um, and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what's, how does this passage, visiting the iniquity on the sons to the fourth and fifth generation, fit into what we just read about God saying, I'm not going to punish the father for the sins of the child or vice versa. Well, the difference is this, and it's something you see worked out in the scriptures. When a child continues to sin in the likeness of his father, he pays the same penalty and consequences that his father did. That's what it means to visit the iniquity. In other words, God says, I punished the father. Then when the child continues in the same vein as the father, I put that same penalty on the child, and I continue to do that as long as that pattern continues. That's righteous. That's just. Who's paying the consequence for their sin? The children. For whose sin? Really, for their own sin. However, they learned that from their parents, plus they've got their own innate sinful nature, right? That's what the scriptures teach. But when that child decides to break that pattern, what does God do? 
He no longer visits the punishment, the penalty, if you will, the same thing the parent faced on that child. We see that in the in, in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. It's a great picture of how you got these these kings, and it says they just followed in the footsteps of their father, and they all sinned, they all paid the penalty just like their father did, until a king says, "I'm not going to do it," and he stands up, and we have what we refer to as a righteous king. And then Israel is blessed, the king is blessed, that pattern is broken. And so when you take these two passages in Deuteronomy, that's what you really find. A child pays the consequence for his own sin, but oftentimes it reflects what happened to the father. And the Lord will do that. He will continue to punish down each line as a child continues and another child continues in that same pattern. tells us a little bit about the importance of being a good dad, doesn't it? And a good mom and setting the pattern doesn't always guarantee because children can go their own way and that does happen. So when we look at that, and I say we have to put on our theological caps, when we look at what happens here, what we, I say, have to assume based on this is that God would not allow David to take these men and have and have them handed over to the Gibeonites if there wasn't some culpability. Now, the two grandsons that are mentioned here um, of Saul's. Likely, since we're told in an earlier text that some of David or some of Saul's own grandkids were part of the problem because they were the ones doing the attack, we know at least some of these are guilty outright because they were involved in the attack. I'm going to propose and suggest that the other five that are mentioned here, the further descendants, probably fit into this passage that I just talked about here. They probably continued in the sins of Saul. The text doesn't come right out and tell us that, but it fits the pattern of what we find in the rest of the scriptures. In other words, I think we have to be careful just saying, well, these men are innocent. There's not, there's, they didn't do anything. It was all Saul. We have to be very careful doing that. That's an assumption on our part. Simply because the text doesn't say that they were guilty does not mean that they were not guilty because we have the pattern of the Lord who says, or that says, he doesn't penalize a child for the sins of the father, they get penalized, they get judged for their own sin, which oftentimes is just like their father's. And just like their father's father's. I believe that's what we probably have going on here, that the atonement that God expects here, and the reason that these were handed over is because the only one out of these eight individuals who wasn't like Saul was Jonathan's son, Ishbosheth, which is why he's protected, and the others are not. And so, what happens here? The Gibeonites, along with David, exercise divine judgment against the house of Saul. Look at verses seven through nine. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and the sons of Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, Amari, and Mesibosheth, whom she had borne, it's a different one, to Saul. And the five sons of Merib, the daughters of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzael, or I'm sorry, Barzili. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountains before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together. And they were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. So what we find here is that the 
Gibeonites and David exercise divine judgment against the house of Saul. Now that we know that this is divine judgment, it's in stark contrast to Saul's violation of the covenant with the Gibeonites. David honors his covenant with Jonathan's son. But we know it's a divine act of judgment because twice the text refers to hanging them before the Lord. This phrase is used 259 times in the Old Testament. And every time it refers to being in the presence of God, God watching it, seeing it, and therefore approving of it. And so in this case, this phrase, they hung them before the Lord, means that it was an act of divine judgment. It was something done in the presence of God, something he was requiring as atonement. There's also evidence, this is also evidence by the fact that they were hung in Gebeah of Saul, that's where Saul's headquarters was. In other words, they took and, and um, committed this, this atonement, if you will, back at the basis of where it had started. It was clear they were sending a message that this is the consequence of the sin committed by King Saul, which is why they did it right in his hometown. And so those two things make this very clear that this is an act of divine judgment. So we have in our first section here, This atonement, this atonement that is brought about by an act of divine judgment on those who follow in the footsteps of Saul. Now, immediately following this act of judgment, however, we're introduced to these two, I'm going to just call them beautiful acts of grace. Chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10 is where we find the first one. Let me go ahead and read that for you. Now, Rizpah, the daughter of... I took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock at the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky and she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. So we have this individual Rizpah. She was the mother of the two of the sons that were killed. Her actions here would be expected in some respects, but they reveal something. In the ancient Near East, when people were executed, their bodies were often left out to rot, to be eaten by scavengers, and that was ultimately the final act of humiliation. They would leave them out there for people to see. It was a way of seeing divine judgment upon them. It was sending a message. But the law, on the other hand, forbid this. But the Gibeonites were not bound by law. This was not a law-abiding woman, basically. Um, she should have been. I believe she did this out of respect um, for the law. We don't know for sure if she was law-abiding or not. I probably shouldn't make such a bold claim. We don't get any indication that she is. But the law forbid leaving the bodies out. But these bodies were left out. So what did she do to honor that? Well, she basically camped out there by these bodies. And as it would rain, she kind of built coverings for them. And as the birds and scavengers would come, she would chase them away. And we don't know how long, except that it went from the beginning of spring harvest until it rained. Weeks maybe, maybe a month. She sat out there and prevented these bodies from being humiliated, scavengers coming and taking them away, um, letting the elements get to them. I think it's a divine act of grace. They didn't deserve that. According to near ancient Near Eastern culture, what they deserved was to rot out there and to be made an example of. But the law prohibits that kind of defilement. And part of the reason is God isn't interested in humiliating, degrading, 
You know, even with crucifixion, they weren't supposed to leave the bodies out overnight. Because God is not interested in humiliating somebody when he judges them. And we see that reflected here with her. She would not allow that to happen. Now, David is moved by this. Look at his response in verses 11 through 14. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square in Bashan, or Bethshan, where the Philistines um, had hanged them on the day that the Philistines struck down Saul of Geboah. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, these other seven individuals now. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded, and after that God was moved by prayer for the land. So what did David do? David is looking at this. He's got real, no, no real stake in this. Meaning he just wants the famine to end, he wants the blessings of the Lord to return, but he's watching this woman and everything that she did. And he's moved by it. And so he goes and he gets Saul's bones, gets Jonathan's bones, but then he goes another step further and goes and collects the bodies of these seven men. And he gives them a proper burial. Back in Saul's hometown. Again, something they didn't deserve, something that culturally would not have been done. In fact, Jonathan and and Saul's bones hadn't been placed back yet. And even with that, we know how David felt about Saul and Jonathan. In fact, he praised the men that went and kind of collected their bodies before, but they hadn't been given even a proper burial yet. And yet, this one act of this woman moves David now, her act of grace, her care for these dead bodies, that the world around them would have said, they should sit out there and rot. And she said, no, that's degrading. Even these men don't deserve that. They don't deserve this kind of humiliation. David's so moved by that, he goes and he gathers their bodies and he gives them a proper burial, even the seven men that were just judged for what Saul had done. It's an act of grace. Reflects and tells us something about the Lord again, that the Lord is not interested in humiliation. You know, it's like when he, when he judges us. It's amazing as, I kinda, as I've watched a lot of this COVID stuff tar- start taking place and you see how the world responds, but you can see how some Christians respond. I finally, the other day, blocked somebody on my Facebook page. I thought, I can't look at this guy's posts anymore because it's so vitriolic. It's just, it's almost like, you know, I want these people humiliated for what they're doing. I'm like, you know, if anything, you should want them to change their minds and start behaving rationally, but are you really interested in degradation and humiliation and then being embarrassed publicly? Is that really what we do as Christians? Is that really what we want? When the Lord judges, He's not interested in that. He's not interested in humiliation and degradation. If anything, what the Lord primarily wants, and we've seen this in our study of Second Samuel, remember when David wept, and Joab was just kind of like... Well, it's because David understood how much forgiveness what the Lord wanted in his own life was when David was judged by the Lord for his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, he received not just God's divine judgment, but God's mercy and his grace as well. And David understood that. And we see that reflected here as he goes and he collects these bodies and gives them a proper burial. He understood God's not interested in judging and then condemning in that respect and then just humiliation and just you get what you, you know... 
Get what you paid for. And we see that reflected here with, with this. Something I think we need to understand in our own forgiveness of other people. When we see others caught in sin or then stumble in their fall and we're kind of like, they get what they deserve. You know, I've told you this before how frustrated I get sometimes and I just have to keep my mouth shut when I hear other Christians talk about, you know, just wish God would just come and rapture the church and the world gets what's theirs. And I'm like, you don't realize what these people will face eternally when Christ comes back. It is the end for them. There is no hope after that. So how can you say, I'm just a little bit bothered by the fact that I have to wear a mask and I hate that so much that I want Christ to come back today and just judge the people that are making me wear the mask. That might be an exaggeration to some extent, but isn't that kind of what we're seeing? Christians whining and complaining about some of the inconveniences or about the fact that our rights are being violated as a nation. I understand that I get it. I'm not happy about it. But to wish that the Lord would initiate his judgment, do we realize what they will face for eternity if that happens? May we be more like the Lord when Peter says he is long-suffering, he doesn't want any to perish. And in the same way, even when God has to judge, whether it's a temporal earthly judgment or whether it's something eternal, God's not interested in condemnation in that respect or humiliation, degradation. He's a God who exercises even when he judges grace. And that's what we see here. So grace was extended to these men. Now the final act that we see here is one of divine mercy. So we've gone from divine judgment to an expression, two expressions of grace during that judgment or shortly thereafter. And how David and Rizpah responded to these men who had apparently sinned in the likeness of their father and therefore were judged. But we see this final act, and this is just part of one verse, verse 14. It's an act of divine mercy. Look at how God responds to this. After David buries these bodies, the second half of verse 14 says, They did all that the Lord commanded, or I'm sorry, that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. David was interested, again, not just in atonement, but in returning the blessings on the inheritance of Israel. That's what he wanted. And what do we see God do here? When the atonement is made, it says that God was moved by the prayers. What does it mean for God to be moved by the prayers of Israel here? For God to be moved meant that he acted. He put an end to the famine. Because everything was satisfied. And so the Lord was moved. He's listening now to Israel's prayers. I think about one of the challenges when we were when the kids were young, because my kids are perfect now, so they don't have to face any of our judgment. Um, but when they were really young and they would sin, one of the things that was important to us is that when we would chastise them, when we would discipline them, that we didn't then just turn our backs on them. That we made them aware that we still love them And it was wrong for us to then shun them because of that. The Lord here does the same thing. Listened. His ears are open. And he's moved by the prayers of Israel now. Everything's been satisfied. And we can assume, based on this, that the famine ended. Because we're told it lasted only three years. 
And so we get this final act of divine mercy by the Lord. So what do we do with all this? Let's go ahead and wrap this up. The main point of the Old Testament is to reveal God to us. So we ask ourselves, what is God revealing about himself to us through all of this? Well, I'm going to suggest three things. The first is that the Lord takes sin seriously and judges it. And sometimes that judgment comes in the form of corporate judgment. Whether it be a church, whether it be a nation, whether it be a people group, sometimes the Lord judges corporately. But he takes sin seriously. And we see that here. Because again, he could have just ignored what Saul did, but he didn't, did he? No. Israel is paying the consequence for it. There's some judgment there. So we see that the Lord takes sin seriously and he does judge it. doesn't just turn his back. The second is that justice and reconciliation demand atonement. That's pretty clear in the text here too. The Lord demanded atonement in this case. It's especially true when it comes to our relationship with God, obviously. The death of Jesus Christ is probably the most significant example of that. It seemed unjust for him to have the Son pay the price for what we did. But that's what he did. So the second point that I'd probably draw out of this is that justice and reconciliation demand atonement, which is why Christ died for us. It's why these seven men died to make atonement for Saul's sins or for Saul's act. The third and final point is that while God is indeed a God of justice and judgment, we see here that he's also a God of grace and mercy. Isn't that true? So we go from this this story of what appears to be this unjust act to realizing how just it truly was, how it satisfies the atonement required for sin, but how God does not do that and leave it there, but instead exercises grace and mercy. They always go together. We see that throughout the scriptures.